0: Well, we are in a series on John chapter 13 through chapter 17 and what I've been calling uh, the Master and the Disciple. And this is Jesus' final teaching to his disciples just before he was betrayed and arrested. And the reason we're doing this series is that in our hyper-individualistic pursue happiness above all things American culture, it's, it's really difficult to think through, let alone live out, being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think it's good to be frank and to recognize that that what Jesus teaches and models is in a lot of ways foreign to us. Really it's it's very much antithetical to our current Americanism. And, and even so, because he loved us, because he loved us and gave himself for us, we want to learn from the master, to walk in his ways. Well, last week we looked at John chapter 13, verses one through 20, and Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And it's a beautiful, symbolic moment of of just how much Jesus loves his people, how, how kind and gracious he is, and to what lengths he will go to save them. But it is also humbling and really unnerving because he he expects us I mean he wants us to follow in his path modeling modeling our lives on his life and to love people like this too now not perfectly of course I mean we cannot redeem other people but still if we love God we will want to walk in his ways and love as he loved not in word only not in cheap, sentimental emotion like what is often display, on display, but in real, tangible, self-sacrificial ways. Matt Capps recently put it like this. Salvation is surrender. Sanctification is war. And what he means is that to receive life with Christ, to receive the redemption and the resurrection he freely offers us, we do nothing except surrender to him. That's part of what faith is. We, we give up ourselves and we give in to him. We submit. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Sanctification, that is our growth in Christ, which is something that God works in us through the spirit, but also something we respond to in faith. Well, it's, it's a long-term war and it's a war of the heart in which we battle most often against our, our inward desires, our sinful desires, but also the outward pressure to succumb to those desires. And this, this battle never stops. It never stops and we face it all the time. So as verse 20 says from last week, as the father sent Jesus, so he sends his disciples and in turn, so he sends us out into the world. So we, as his people, are no longer of the world. We are set apart. We are holy. We are sanctified. Even as our calling, like like all those who've gone before us who claim the name of Christ, is to love as he did. And this is what it is to be a disciple, you see. It's what it is to be a disciple of the master. And it's the defining characteristic of God's people, so says Jesus. Well, this week, we're going to pick it up. We're still in chapter 13. We're going to pick it up with verse 21 and go uh, to the end of the chapter. Let me read for us. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask to see Jesus in this time. We don't pray for a skillful sermon. We pray for a good time of meditation on your word that we might see Jesus. We pray that we would grow in our estimation of him, in our honor of him, in our love for him, that we will see just to what depths he was willing to go, to just how much he truly loves us and that we in turn would want to follow. Oh Lord, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, okay, clearly from my sermon title, we're going to be focused on Jesus' command to love one another as Jesus loved his disciples. What I find fascinating is that he gives this command, not in the midst of a formal teaching like what we're doing here, but in the midst of a troubling and confusing moment that includes betrayal, Satan and false bravado. The section begins with Jesus having just washed his disciples' feet and telling them to model their life on his life and their character on his character and their love on his love. But even as he's telling them to do that, he's warning them that one of their number was going to betray him. And this is not the first time he's mentioned this. In John chapter 6, verse 70, for example, He mentions that even though he chose his disciples, one of them was a devil. And John gives us the insider knowledge that it was Judas Iscariot. So by the time we get to chapter 13, we have this this insider knowledge in our head. And what is clear to us was very confusing to the disciples because they didn't see it. So when Jesus calls Judas a devil in chapter 6, he doesn't mean that he's actually a devil, but rather... He is following in the footsteps of the father of lies, the great serpent of old who rejected God and tempted humanity to do the same. You see, Judas was facing the same temptation Adam faced in the garden and was turning to the lie. And this is a key question in discipleship. Who are you listening to? It's like what the book of Proverbs continually warns about. That is, who will you listen to when it really matters. And and whatever you do, whatever you do, don't listen to your heart because you will deceive yourself. And Proverbs 8, uh, 35 through 36 puts it like this. For whoever finds me, and the way this is structured is lady wisdom, which is the word of God, is lady wisdom personified, calling out in the marketplace to whoever will listen. It's, It's she who's talking. It says, for whoever finds me, that his wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And it's, it's like what Augustine once remarked. He said, you know, the true wisdom of man is the worship of God. Proverbs 8, you see, is written to God's people. This is not, you know, some hidden wisdom that people have to figure out some secret that, that they got to go hunting for. No, this, this is out in the open. This is a choice put to God's people like, like Adam in the garden that's there for the taking if they want it. Who do you think is right? The word of God or the word of the serpent? Now think on that. Those who refuse to listen to God and his wisdom, particularly the word made flesh in the Messiah, no matter the wonderful things they may do, and they may do wonderful things, or how nice they may be, they actually hate God, and they injure themselves, and in turn, they love death. That's the path Judas is on, and it's troubling, and it's, it's in fact, distressing to Jesus, and it should be to us, too. You know, how could someone who had witnessed what Judas witnessed, someone who had... Engaged in ministry in Jesus' name at some cost to himself, turn against Jesus. You know, every individual, of course, is, is unique and complicated, but at root, when someone turns from God, they have believed a lie and have loved death instead. Now, they may not see it that way. In fact, usually, like with Adam, they see it as choosing wisdom and life. It's why you know, the great truth of our times, you know, the ethic everyone believes in, is love yourself. Listen to your heart and therein pursue what makes you happy. So, for example, Facebook is, has a commercial running right now that's aimed specifically at 20-something-year-olds. that begins with a young woman posting you know, a, a message to a 20-somethings group. And it, all she writes is, feeling lost, help. And the answer all these very diverse young people give her is the same. Pursue whatever makes you happy. That's what's going to get you out of feeling lost. There is nothing new under the sun. This is what Judas was doing too. And it's troubling to Jesus. I mean, I love that Jesus is not stoic about this as Ezekiel teaches you know God doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked and here with with Judas we see God's heart on full display Judas was free to make his choice and it distressed Jesus how could a good God not be troubled by that how could a good God not be troubled by Judas believing a lie even so Jesus is in full control of what's happening in that moment. And even though it did not appear that way to everyone involved, the text makes it clear, no, Jesus really does know what's going on. I mean, even Satan responds to his commands. Well, Judas, as we consider him, had never given any real outward indication that he was losing faith in Jesus, even as he was. His his outward demeanor did not match his inward disposition. This is partly why the disciples are so confused and don't really understand what's going on. But that inward disposition soon would would start acting out, as it does for everyone. I mean, eventually, we always act on our heart's desires. And yet, Jesus knew it. He knew what was happening. He could see to the heart of Judas. And still, he showed him kindness. Still, he showed him patience. I mean, Jesus, this is incredible, y'all. Jesus loves his enemies even to the end. It's at this point that we are introduced to the beloved disciple, that is John, who who serves as a contrast to both Judas, but also to Peter as well. So Jesus and his disciples are reclining on, on cushions at a a low-sitting, kind of U-shaped table in the Roman style with with Jesus at the pinnacle. So just to get the image of this, it's a low table, so they're on the ground, on cushions. It's U-shaped in the sense that servants can come, put food on the table, then back away. And at the pinnacle of this is Jesus because he's the host. So you should get this image. And virtually everyone is reclining on their their right hand like so, so they can come and just, just kind of take. This is just the standard way uh, of, of doing these, these kinds of meals. So Je- John was to Jesus's right, leaning against Jesus' chest. So see the image. He's, he's back like this with Jesus right here on him, right? So he's, he's right on, on Jesus. He's literally in the bosom of Jesus, which is exactly, this is key. This is exactly how Jesus is described in his relationship to God the Father in John one eighteen. So as Jesus is to the Father, so this beloved disciple in this moment is to Jesus. And it kind of goes, if you have the Son, then you have the Father. Now, of course, Jesus loved all his disciples, but he was particularly close to John. And this is surprising to us, but just ask the question, why? Well, I think it's akin to what James 4, 8 says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And that's very important, you see, because God wants us to pursue him. God wants us to draw near to him. Now Jesus, of course, pursued John. Jesus chose John. But John also pursued Jesus in return, and he's therein presented in, in this gospel, really from here on out, as, as kind of a model disciple. After all, you know, he did not run from the courtyard of the high priest's house when, when Jesus was enduring that sham trial and things were starting to get tense. He never denied Jesus like Peter did he stood with Mary as Jesus hung on the cross and he outrun Peter to the tomb after the resurrection and was the first disciple to believe the women's testimony. so John was in really this, this privileged position on Jesus's right hand lying with his head on Jesus's chest and, and Peter, who is at some distance and maybe think he's at, he's at the end of the table maybe he prevails on him with a nod to get information out of Jesus about who the betrayer was. And you, you could just imagine he's going, hey. that, you know, one of those kind of things that, that men tend to do. So John asked Jesus, Lord, who is it? And you need to see this again as a quiet question for Jesus's ears only. Nobody else heard him ask this. And Jesus says in a similar quiet fashion, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now keep in mind, this is where this gets really interesting. Keep in mind, more than likely, Judas was on Jesus' left hand. He was on his left hand, also in a place of privilege. See, John the Beloved on his right, Judas the Betrayer on his left. One drew near, one Fell away, And so Jesus, the bread of life, offered himself one last time to Judas. And Judas, in that moment, made his final decision. He came to his conclusion to reject Jesus. And as we know, he would soon betray Jesus with the kiss of friendship. And So what appears to the disciples as Judas taking food from Jesus's hand, which, by the way, it doesn't say he ate it. He took it but did not receive Jesus. Was in reality Judas giving himself fully over to a lie and in return, or in turn, like like Cain, he gave himself over to Satan. And in that very next second, Jesus commands both Judas and Satan and Satan, so to speak, was incarnate in, in, in Judas. Jesus tells them both in that moment, act quickly and they do it. John then tells us that it was night. Now, while part of this is just simple historical narration, I mean, the Passover meal was celebrated at night, it really doesn't need to be said. So why does John say it? Well, I think John is making a contrast that he he does right from the beginning of his gospel that shows up in 1 John 2. A disciple is someone who walks in the light as Jesus is in the light. The world hates the light and prefers the darkness because it cannot comprehend the light. And though Jesus would soon be arrested, and though it appears like the darkness is winning, the darkness cannot overcome the light. Now, once Judas had gone, Jesus tells his disciples that what he's about to do will both manifest God's glory and will bring glory to himself. And because of that, he would be with him just a little while longer. Then he would be gone to a place where they, they could not follow. And he was, of course, referring to his, his coming death. And the disciples, you see, they wanted Jesus to be glorified. They had rightly believed Jesus was the Christ, the heir of David's throne. And they were expecting him to come into his glory right before their eyes. But they did not accept that this glory would come through his death, especially in a humiliating way. It's why Jesus has been telling them a long time this is going to happen, and they rejected it. What they had envisioned was, was Jesus becoming a new and better Caesar, you know, both the king of the Jews and the king of the world, because that's what glory looks like to us. But what does a, a new and better Caesar actually look like? More of what's on offer in Rome? or Washington, or Moscow. You know, so for example, do you know why Matthew and Luke give such detailed genealogies in their gospels? Well, as Shane Morris comments, it's because Jesus was the heir to the throne of Judah in a legitimate and earthly, not just spiritual, but earthly sense. And by being king of Judah, remnant of the priestly nation of Jacob, he stood to inherit the world as it was promised by God to Abraham. So God's promise to Abraham, really, it begins with Eve, was about this world, this world. This was a real world political promise made by God and fulfilled in Jesus. But how Jesus pursued his legal and royal rights and chose to glorify God, didn't just give him the world, it redeemed it. And that's the difference. You see, worldly political rulers, even some of them who have been very good, cannot redeem the world. They just can't. Let alone, you know, they they, they can't fix their people. They can't even fix themselves. So no matter who is in office, it's always going to end in death. Jesus wanted to redeem his world and cleanse his bride, just as Paul describes it in Ephesians 5. And it's why when we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, we see God's heart and character on full display, feet washing, loving his enemies, being nailed to a cross. That is exactly where God chose to glorify himself. And it shows what love actually really looks like. And by the way, this is how God still chooses to glorify himself through his people. Peter hardly heard the command to love one another because, well, he was stuck on Jesus leaving and, and he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, you can't follow me now, but you will be able to follow me afterward. And again, as we've been saying for over a month now, th- I mean, this is the essence of discipleship. Your life is going somewhere, just as Jesus says. You will follow after Jesus. It's moving towards God, but Peter doesn't see it. You know, Peter doesn't understand that that only Jesus can lay down his life for the sheep. Only Jesus can cleanse his people by washing their feet, but But once he has laid down his life and taken it back up again, his people will love as he loved and will follow after him. You know, just as the father sent Jesus, so Jesus in turn sends his disciples. But Peter, with Jesus' talk about betrayal, I'm sure it's still ringing in his ears, says with this, this just false bravado, and I understand why he says it, but it's false. Why can't I follow you now? don't you know I'd die for you? And I believe in that moment, like a lot of teenage men talking to teenage women, they really meant it. But I also don't think he had really counted the cost or really believed he would have to actually die. It's like how Jackie Hill Perry recently put it. He said, she said, excuse me, faithfulness to anything, Faithfulness to anything is rarely, if ever, based on a feeling. Don't you know I love you? It's almost always a decision. And I would add to that, it is always a costly decision. See, to be an adult is to make decisions that cost you something. To keep faith with a spouse is a costly decision that must not be based on feelings alone. It must not. To keep faith with your children is a costly decision too. It's why it's so sad to me when you hear parents complain about what they had to give up in order to raise their kids, which is usually just some throwaway pleasure, their Friday night or the freedom to continue to act like a 22-year-old when they're a 40-something-year-old. You know, if we base faithfulness on our feelings, none of us would choose to be faithful to anything. It's why one of the most important descriptions of our God comes from Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that statement doesn't come from emotion. It comes from a history of showing he meant it by taking the hard road for his people. See, God's love is not wishy-washy. It's not like ours. It's not sentimental. It's not based on how good or bad you are. Christ washed his OU little faith people. He washed his OU of little faith disciples' feet and laid down his life for them. And I'm so grateful he did that based on his commitment. That's how Peter wants to be for Jesus, but he fails because he's running on emotion. So it's with all this going on that Jesus gives the command to love one another as he has loved them. And how has he loved them? By putting them first and and sacrificing his life for them. The king washed his servants' feet. The shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. And it's a reversal of everything the world assumes. Servants wash the king's feet, not the other way around. It's why everybody wants to be king and why power has become the defining feature of how Americans think about relationships. We want the power, we want to be served. Sheep lay down their lives for the shepherd, not the other way around. Shepherds fleece the sheep. That's what they're there for. They eat the sheep because they're tasty. The sheep are their property. This king, this shepherd turns the world on its head and gives his life for what the world despises or makes little of. And this is the kind of love that will characterize God's people. That's what Jesus says. That's what God has always intended from the beginning. This is how... Adam and Eve were supposed to be, but rejected. This is what is at the heart of the Ten Commandments. As God has so loved you, so love him in return and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Ten Commandments. This is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount and the fruit of the Spirit. Thing is, everybody loves. Everybody loves, but don't love as the world loves. Love as God has loved you. Jesus says that this is how the world will know that we belong to him by how we love God and each other. And isn't it fascinating that it's not by our power or our politics or our institutions and how glorious they are or by whatever miracles we can perform. No, we demonstrate that we belong to him by our love. That's what he says in this passage. It's modeled on his love. John expounds on this in, in 1 John chapter 3, and the, the whole chapter, the whole book is really good, but let me read what he says starting in verse 11 of chapter 3. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, and that's the beginning of his preaching to this people, but really we could say from the beginning of the Bible, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous Keep in mind, they both worshipped. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You know how often Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you? If you don't love, what do you abide in? Something. Here John says death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Murderer. Hate leads to murder, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So John here is not saying anything that the Old Testament doesn't say let alone Jesus. John says, you know, if you want to know if you actually belong to God, just just do a self-assessment. Do I actually love God's people as Jesus defines it here, not as the world defines it? Which, you know, the way the world does it is just cheap. It's self-centered sentimentalism, which loves on its own terms. But no, do I love as Jesus defines it here? I mean, just ask yourself, what's your cutoff point? What's your cutoff point on how much you will love? Your time, which, as I said last week, I think is the biggest thing for us. The biggest thing for us. Even more than money. It's our time. How about somebody's politics? How annoying that person is, or just maybe how useful that person is to you. How much effort will it take to help them or do right by them? Is the person beneath you? Or someone you like, and maybe respect. Well, helping them maybe get something for you. Are we like the parents who complain about having to give up another Friday night for the kids? Are we the sort of people who, who do not, we do not hesitate to condemn other Christians over something as flimsy and temporal as politics? Do we hate people for getting the vaccine or for not getting it? Do we mock people for being the sort of mindless sheep who do what they're told and wear a mask? Or conversely, do we arrogantly condemn the jerks who obviously hate their fellow Americans because they won't wear one? It's like what James chapter three says. Listen to this. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness That is gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, each of us should be asking, does that describe me? And in turn, is this what Christians together look like right now? You know, to some extent, it should describe us because it's what Christ wants for us. And if it doesn't, you know, sooner or later, our inward disposition, the thing we have set our heart on, it's going to come to light. And the thing is, as, as Matt Chandler recently said, you know, the bar in America is so low right now for being genuinely kind. It's basically, the bar is basically don't be a jerk. That's it. Don't be a jerk. And how sad is that? And how sad is it that so many Christians can't even hit that bar? It's like what Roger Scruton argues. He says happiness does not come from the pursuit of pleasure, nor is it guaranteed by freedom. It comes from sacrifice. That is the great message that is conveyed by all the memorable works of our culture. It is the message that has been lost in the noise of false hopes. So for example, you know, people still marvel. They are still taken aback by Mr. Rogers. Not because he pursued his pleasure, but because he pursued sacrifice for the least among us. It takes so little to not be a jerk because most people either online or in their daily interactions are completely driven by their selfish desires that to do even the bare minimum of what Jesus describes will make us look crazy to people, really to the world. Not because we believe in doctrines they find hard to believe, that, that goes without saying, but because they can't believe we actually live like this. So in the midst of this scene, we have these three responses to Jesus that I think we're meant to ponder and meditate on, and this is what we're going to end with. And the first is clearly Judas. And don't think of Judas as a pagan. Judas was a disciple. Otherwise, it wasn't a betrayal. Like Cain, he worshipped God. He, he, he brought his offering, and he followed after God up to a point. I, I dare say he sacrificed more than I ever have to follow Christ for three years. When he reached that point, though, he chose a lie, in you know, forfeiting his soul in order to gain what he thought was the world, and he loved death instead. And what that should tell us is that spiritual warfare is a real thing. It's a real thing. If you don't think services like this one don't come under attack or that you in in the quiet of your life won't face it, especially when you have thoughts that are unbidden and you can just feel it. like Where did that come from? Well, you're not taking Scripture seriously. All of us here will face breaking points. Multiple times in our life in which we must either choose our God or choose a lie. And there will be some who choose a lie and follow after it to their death. You know, it's partly why, why so many people have fallen away from God over the last 20 years. You know, they found something they think is more reliable. I mean, I'm talking people raised in the church. They found something that they think is more reliable or more stable or more rational or more relevant or more moral, you know, something they think will give them the world and their soul. And when people fall away from Jesus for whatever reason, and the reasons are, they're so much more complicated than what I'm saying here, our response should be like Jesus's. We should be troubled and disheartened because we know they love death. We should absolutely should not just say, well, good riddance, I don't care about that. Jesus didn't respond that way. But then there is both John and Peter. And I think Gerald Borchardt is is right when he says the two men are not pitted against each other. That is like one a good example and one a bad one so much as they, they show us how we tend to be one disciple or the other or both at times. There will be times of which we draw near to God. There will, in which we are faithful and we run to him. There may be times in which someone will look at you, like I look at Mr. Rogers and think, man, that that person is really close to God, and I want to be like that. There'll be times in which we, we just don't get what God is talking about, though we think we do, in which we think we are full of faith, but we're not. At times when we, we make just rash and stupid declarations that show our faith is really about an inch deep. And I can't tell you, you know, how many times I have preached sermons just like this one, only to have denied it by what I've said or done before the day is over. I mean, there's no failure like a pastor's failure when he speaks of the glories of God and fails to take them seriously in his own life, let alone his own home. But what John and Peter believed and what Judas rejected is that their lives were caught up in this God. And we, we do not, let me encourage you here, we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the king who washes our feet and to the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We belong to the God who loves when we draw near and is patient and gentle and faithful when we don't. Even when we deny him, you are not your own. You were bought at a great price, and he is ever faithful. His love for you will never change. He has set his heart on you, and he will never let you go. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you a God so full of loving kindness and faithfulness. There is no shepherd like our shepherd, Jesus. And so, Spirit, we pray, work in us, in our hearts and our minds, as you've promised to sanctify us. Work in us when those thoughts come. Work in us when the temptation comes to follow after a lie. Work in us throughout this week, because it will be a hard week if we take these things seriously, that we would walk in your ways, that we'd want to pursue you, And when we fail, because we will, we ask, point us back to our good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.